Welcome to Decades From Home, a podcast about Germany. I'm Nick Houghton of 40percentgerman.com and as always I'm joined by my co-host Dilly Algemer to discuss the weird and wonderful side of living in Germany. How you doing Dilly? You've got a, a suspicious smile on your face. I have a feeling this is related to the question that you're about to ask me. I'm very good, thank you. How are you Nick? I'm feeling good but I asked you a a non-sequitur question to start the show last week and I did say that I would offer you the same courtesy this week. So I have frankly been terrified for the last seven days. So Dilly, put me out my misery. What question are you going to ask me? Okay, this is your question, Nick. What is something that you feel like you indulge in but it probably isn't a luxury? Something that I indulge in that probably isn't a luxury. It feels like you're indulging in it. It's something you look forward to and you like it, but it feels like a luxury, but it isn't. This might seem a little bit pretentious, but I don't really get a lot of time to read at the moment. And I have a 25 minute, maybe less than that, 22 minute commute to work and back. And in those 22 minutes, I get to read and I'm like in my own zone, I have my headphones in, I can't hear anything. I can occasionally look out the window, it's quite nice. And I enjoy that part of my day. It's like, it's of absolutely no luxury. Most of the time I'm standing trying to read a book. But yeah, I guess that's something that I really look forward to. I was going to say vape, but vape is a luxury. So I can't really say that, but I do enjoy a good vape. Uh, but yeah, reading, reading on, the, on the old public transport, something I do enjoy. Do you uh, do you get something similar in yourself, Dilly? Do you read on public transport or are you just constantly cycling everywhere? No, I, I read. I play Duolingo. I uh, catch up on my correspondence. Do you read just WhatsApp messages? Yeah, I do. <laughs> Everything I missed because uh, I don't usually check my phone when I'm in school. Yeah, yeah, that's sensible. And on my way back home is usually when my brother's getting ready for bed in Australia, Melbourne. You, you have like a night-night conversation with them? Yeah. With your brother? Yeah, with my brother and my sister-in-law. And I have to catch them in that time frame. Yeah, that's really sweet. I think that's better than reading a book. No, reading is good. Yeah, but you're communicating with humans is even better, I would say. Um, I read some blinding stuff today because, I mean, this is how interesting I am. The book I'm currently reading, which I can't recommend highly enough, mm-hmm. it's called Germany, A Nation in Its Time, oh. and it's 1500 to 2000. And I was like, I bought it because it seemed interesting. But it, what it has is a lot of sections on like um, people who traveled around Germany in various different centuries and their perceptions of them. And there's a great bit with uh, uh, one observer, I think he's called Friedrich Nikolai. And he's one of these people who believes in physiology, the idea that you can predict somebody's nature by like judging a book by its cover. Essentially, you look at someone and go, ah, oh, that's the kind of person. It's like the backbone of British colonialism or colonialism. <laughs> pretty, pretty. <laughs> Pretty much. And there's a great bit where he describes, he sees some Tyrolean peasants in their traditional garb. And he says, I observed them long and precisely and hardly saw anyone so stupid and bigoted. That's <laughs> just like, what, what a wild, like what a wild century to be in where you're just looking at people going, yeah, they're a bigot. How'd you know? His eyes are too close together. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. But he's got some lovely things to say about the Schwabians and the Bavarians as well. He said about the Swabians, and bear in mind I'm in Swabia, so this will make everybody in Swabia happy. He says that the Swabians 
had positive characteristics, they were calm and generous, and that the beauty of the Swabian women also impressed him. Also impressed him. All I'm saying is I'm married to a Swabian woman. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I'm making up for last week after accidentally insulting my wife. <laughs> Turns, turns out, people, she does listen, just randomly. <laughs> serves you right. Serves you right. Yeah, no, no, really, really does. So I'm going to be careful about what I say. All I will say, Swabian women are beautiful. There we go. So, Dilly, you have a topic you've suggested to start us off this week. So the thing is, uh, you know, something that strikes me as, as an immigrant here from Sri Lanka living in Germany is that I miss my parents uh, when I'm sick. You have a sick routine. I'm sure everyone has a sick routine. And there are things that you eat. You get, uh, you know, there are things that you eat when you're sick and your mother makes you something and your father checks in on you. And, or at least my father checks in on me. And he you know, brings yeah. me king coconut or he asks me what he should get from the shops. And he goes yeah. around to the junction or the corner and gets something from the grocery store there. But being an immigrant and you're on your own and you don't have a family here, it can get quite difficult because you, you have to like have your sick day uh, necessities somewhere or um, uh-huh. drag your heels all over the countryside getting your oranges and juice or whatnot. <laughs> like I know I'm sure Germans miss their browser tablet when they're abroad and for the uninitiated. These are the fizzy tablets that go off in water. You know, they're uh, vitamins Mm. and minerals, iron and zinc tablets and so on. And they're very nicely favored. So I was wondering, what sort of things do you miss, Nick, when you are sick? What is it like? Um, I don't regularly get sort of ill. I've got quite a good constitution when it comes to that. Either that or I'm really good at just like muddling through when I'm sick. Like, I'm kind of sick, but if I stop, then I'll probably get really sick. I think the thing that sort of annoys me is the fact that a lot of very basic medication you can get in the UK in a supermarket, you can only get in an apotheca here. So things like paracetamol or like Lemsip equivalent, some kind of like medicated fruit drink that you can get in the uk which is like a it's it's basically you pour hot water into a sachet of medicine and it becomes like a like a a flu remedy so there's lots of those but you don't really get well at least i haven't seen them because i I don't really go into apothecas that much so i do find that a little bit annoying that medication is kind of restricted i don't know i think initially i didn't go to apothecas because i was worried about speaking German. Now I don't go because it kind of annoys me. It kind of annoys me the process of speaking to apotheca employees. Like I know what I want. I just want these things. And nearly every time I try and buy something, they try and convince me that I'm buying the wrong thing. And that I find is a little bit of an irritating conversation to have. It's a foot Yeah. So that would be one thing that annoys me. Mm-hmm. You said there was some remedies. You said coconut there was a remedy king coconut oh right okay do you know it no not really no um so it's something in the coconut family it's it's orange and inside mm-hmm. it's very sweet so you drink the water i think in british english you call the water coconut milk am milk. i right yeah 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 coconut yeah. milk and um it's it's supposed to be very cooling for the body right. so my parents if i'm sick sometimes i get some king coconut mm-hmm. and you can also eat the very soft flesh and that's quite nice I know I said that I wouldn't insult my wife, but I guess I do have to broach the point that 
she's like the worst nurse. I've said this to Simon before. Like when I'm sick, she's not great. She's not like got a bedside manner or anything. She's very much annoyed that I'm sick, that I have a legitimate reason to stay in bed, that kind of thing. So she gets kind of annoyed when I'm sick, which means that I'm kind of on my own <laughs> when I get sick. It's like, yeah, I'm just going to have to get through this somehow. So like usually if I do get properly sick, it's cups of tea and things like that. Like I, I try and avoid coffee. I try not to, to vape. I try not to do those things. But there's one thing that I don't do that I used to really enjoy as a little kid. There's two things. And again, this is a cup form sort of beverage, but like cordial with hot water. Oh, nice. Right. That was like the standard, but you don't really have a lot of cordials in, in Germany. There's not like a, a sort of a vast amount. It's often just like fruit juices. But isn't that the same as zero syrups? Yeah, I guess so. But they're a bit thicker than... I don't know. I mean, the consistency's different, and I'm not sure the like the Waldmeister syrup is really going to do me any favors, so I won't be getting any of that. And uh, the other one would be like cup of soup. I've never had like, one. It's not great, but I mean, it's it's convenient in the situation. I don't know. My mum used to give us cup of soups when we were sick, Aww. and I guess it was just because it was easy, right? But like, you sort of felt like it was a bit special because you were having soup in a cup. So there was that was quite nice. But I mean, it's very salty, and isn't that this kind of thing you can eat when you're sick? I think it was just like it's liquid, so it'll be easy to digest, I suppose. Yeah, and not because it's just easy, I guess. I'm terrible for when I get sick, because I will just try and plod on through. I think your wife probably has a point. Maybe I'd like to have her as a guest here one day <laughs> to hear her side of the story. Yeah, no, she's never coming on. You can only accept my clear... Uh, unvarnished truth that I'm offering you in this moment. Adulterated truths. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, like I do the very masculine thing of just going like, right, I'm fine. And I did this at the weekend. I was like just ignoring the fact I was ill because it was the weekend and I just got worse and worse and worse. Um, and I really didn't sort of feel better until probably Sunday evening. Um, I, do you rush off to the doctors? Like That's often what a lot of people will do, you know? Is that something that you, as soon as you get a bit sick, you're like, doctor's appointment? I feel like you're judging me right now. You know, it's something No, 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 you rush off to the doctors, you know? Yes, Nick, I rush off to the doctors. You know, that's what that's what people do. It's a promise I made to myself at the start of this year that when I'm sick, I will take time off work. I will not power through. I don't want to have burnouts and not be nice to my body. So yes, that's something I do. I I rush off to the doctor, Nick. Um, yeah, I mean, I was only as a, as a binary. I mean, I'm the exact opposite. I don't really rush anywhere, especially not to see the doctor. But I sort of I feel like it's an inconvenience, right? It's like oh, I've got a cold. Oh, I'll just deal with it. Like it's an inconvenience to call the doctors and go like oh, I've got a cold. Can you help me, please? Do you go to work still? I, if I'd felt the way I felt on Saturday, no, I wouldn't have gone to work. But by the time Monday rolled around, I woke up and it was Monday and I was like, oh, I could, you could call in sick, right? Because you're a bit ill. Yeah. And then I got up and I was like, no, nah, I'm not ill. I'm not ill at all. I could. No. I was like, I, I sound like I've smoked 40 cigarettes. But aside from that, my only concern was would my voice go and then I couldn't teach because you can't teach with that. No. I was like maybe interpretive dance for effective writing one, but <laughs> that probably wouldn't go well. Yeah, if I'd felt as bad as I did on Saturday, I would have stayed stayed at home. I'm not a total lunatic. Because that's the thing, right? In Germany, it's sort of, 
it's, it's frowned upon to go to work yeah. if you even have a little bit of a sickness. And with good reason. Yeah, totally. Makes sense, right? But in Britain, it's like a sign of weakness or something, I think. You see that in flu season, all the flu remedies that are advertised are things that are like people on buses sneezing and then they take the flu remedy and they go to work and they feel fine. But it's always about like continue, continue, continue. Don't skip a day from work. And either that's because of the mentality and of the British, like the work ethic or the, the belief that they have to have some kind of work ethic to have any value. That's what I was brought up with too in Sri Lanka. My yeah. mother wouldn't let me stay home. You know, go to school, you can't rest afterwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very much that attitude, right? But like the other side might just be that we don't have very good sick pay. And so you just um, have to go to work. Like when I worked for minimum wage oh so many years ago, you only got sick pay after your third sick day. So if you missed three days, you wouldn't get paid for them. It's like no one, no one took a sick day. I didn't take a sick day for about eight years. Like and there was days where I probably should have done. And not all of them were hangovers. That's something I really like about Germany, that you can be sick yeah. for as long as you're sick. That's something that I'm quite grateful for. And also for colleagues who stay home when they're sick. It's a really sort of polite thing to do, isn't it? Not trying to just infect everybody with your own weirdness. Mm -hmm. But I guess that's why flu season can be so hellish in Britain. Because um, everyone's just up to the gills with like short-term remedies and, and things like that. And is it the case in Sri Lanka that that attitude prevails then? This attitude of just keep going, don't take a sick day. Is that a general attitude in, in Sri Lanka or is it is this just your mother? <laughs> That's a very good question. When we were kids and going to school, I think she saw it as some kind of children moral failing if we were homesick because uh, you miss a day of school and how do you make up for that? It instills a very bad work ethic, at least something mm. I didn't deal with or unpack till I was in my early 30s. I think you're right there. If a parent just lets you take days off, yeah, it can be pretty bad. I mean, I've worked in jobs where the sick days accumulate because you've got no motivation. So I yeah. understand that feeling as well. Yeah. There isn't a, an option to have like a personal day, really. I sometimes, it's like once every couple of months, you wake up on a, a Wednesday and you're like, mm -hmm. oh, fuck, I am, can't it be fucked with this? Yeah. I'll just take a day off. Like, I like that idea. I think that's a good thing. But again, I do suspect people would abuse it a bit more. But working from home, I suppose, sort of mitigates that to a certain mm. extent. Yeah, I do. I think the work ethic thing is quite, quite important. Yeah. But my, my daughter's sick at the moment, so Aww. we'll see if we can instill a work ethic in her. <laughs> so I have had my eye on uh, what uh, Ngozi Kulani experienced in the Buckingham Palace um, at the hands and frankly shortly conversing skills of Susan Hussey. And I listened to uh, Fulani talking about the conversation and it's an extremely long interrogation. I mean, if you're familiar with immigrant stand-up comedians, this is like every mm. immigrant stand-up comedian skit strung yeah. together. It's that long. What I have seen so far is that uh, Fulani is getting a lot of backlash online from people who seem to think that it's her fault for getting offended. And her speaking up about it is apparently a fall from grace. I've also seen that the palace has asked her to come back and um, has probably been in touch with her since. In the grand tradition of uh, people being asked to also be act as educators after they've just been traumatized, 
I hope that that isn't also her experience. I was wondering, though, is it is it something you're aware of, the story and the experience? I tracked the story from when it came out last week. Am I surprised? No. No, I'm not surprised at all that that is the kind of experience that a person of colour would have while wandering the halls of Buckingham Palace. Have I experienced it to a lesser extent, I suppose? We've talked before about my experience living in Germany is if I shut up and just look at my shoes, no one's going to challenge me about my Germanness, right? So it's only really if I open my mouth. But usually, usually it's a white person asking me, another white person, where I'm coming from. And the context of that discussion is so different from the context of this discussion because it's kind of like, well, I am not from here. So you asking me that question makes a lot of sense. It's totally reasonable. The difference, I think, is that with Fulani in, in Buckingham Palace, she's a British citizen born in Britain, being sort of challenged on her background or uh, her citizenship or whatever in this very sort of arch and typical british upper class way the thing that stuck in my mind was the bit she talked about how how she had moved her hair out of the way of a badge to see like that's the privilege of centuries right that's the kind of thing you're dealing with with the royal family if you think that isn't going to happen like they're not normal people living normal lives doing normal things as much as they will project that or pretend that or talk about how they're kind of normal or they have normal experiences none of them are normal and none of them have normal experiences and it's just a fucking sideshow if you ask me like their entire sort of existence is just a distraction but this is where it becomes real in that we use the royal family as a, a kind of staging post to celebrate people of importance in the country, whether that's to give them knighthoods or damehoods or OBEs or to just invite them to Buckingham Palace. Like this is this is the dream that everyone's ever had is to come to Buckingham Palace and have a conversation with some inbred geriatric bit of aristocracy you know like that's essentially what you're dealing with people who've never lived a normal life communicating with people who live the most normal existence possible and people who obviously miss diversity there they're not fucking idiots but these are people in positions of privilege who have no perception of what it's like not to be in a, a person of privilege like the royal family the front and center members of the royal family are trained and work very hard so that the mask doesn't slip so they do appear when you talk to them like they have normal exist like they are trained to be like that oh, right okay. they are they have well yeah i mean like we pretending that prince william and prince harry and Meghan markle or like princess catherine that they're normal people well that's a fucking lie we're just lying to ourselves if we think they're normal people whether they're good people or not is fucking up to you i don't care but like they're not normal they're made relatable and there's a comedian called Greg Davies and he wrote this song it's a it's a piss take and it's called My Nan Your Nan right mm. which is about like he sings about how his grandmother potters in the garden and mm -hmm. like she sleeps in her armchair mm -hmm. and then he compares his grandmother to is it yeah. Prince Harry or Prince William's grandmother the Queen right uh -huh. and he's like the joke is like it's obvious that there's ridiculous and he's like my nan has her face on a tea towel or something and it's mm -hmm. your nan has her face on our money you know and it's kind of comparing mm. these things and the joke yeah. being like obviously like it's kind of funny that you would refer to the Queen as your grandma which is what they do 
um, yeah. because obviously she's the queen. But it's this contrast yeah. is really stark of like what well, a normal grandmother versus this other grandmother and their experiences, yeah. and it underlines the difference, right? I mean, it's not their fault that they're abnormal; they're sort of raised to be in this situation. But then behind the frontline royalty, there are courtiers and knackers and idiots and hangers-on and the inbred cousin who they've locked in the basement and isn't allowed out, you know, like the one with the Habsburg chin and the weird lisp, you know, like there's those people that exist in this entirety, right? And yet it's sadly unsurprising that one of them was let out of a box to meet these people. But that's kind of what these folk are like. It's what the aristocracy's like. How did you feel about it? I mean, I think your opinion's far more interesting than mine. Like, what do you think when you... when you The experience, probably, far more than the opinion. Yeah, yeah, tell me about it. Tell me about that experience. This is something that you get, and um, it can be something curious when it's from a child, maybe. You feel it in your bones. You know when it's curiosity, you know, when someone's interested in you, in that sense. Yeah, but yeah. it's also... Uh, I mean, from adults who should probably know better. Um, and then it's like a slap in the face and you're immediately being like sent back somewhere against your will. And uh, the here and the now that that's you is somehow being denied. It can be very distressing. I, I've seen other people being told, uh, people who are immigrants, uh, yeah, so such and such. Yeah, that you can do that in Syria, but not here. Or um, someone um, telling me, um, why do you go by your second name? Because my first name is Sharia. And uh, why, why do you call yourself Deliris? You know, this is Germany. And immediately the idea is that somehow I go by my second name. It has something to do with the fact that I'm not from Germany or that I'm Sri Lankan. And these are things that can like just leave like, like what? Um, you don't really know how to react. You rehearse in the bathroom or when you read something like this, what happened to Fulani? You imagine, okay, you know, the next time it happens to me, I'm going to say this, this and that. That never comes out. Um, it can be very distressing and it stays with you. But um, I was thinking, though, that I mean, surely this can't be the first time this has happened in the palace. The palace hosts so many people from like all over the place. And surely this woman who served for like what, since 1960, since the early 1960s, I think, she's been a lady in waiting or worked at the palace in some capacity. It can't be the first time she's done this or said stuff like this. Notice what's happened to Fulani after she went public with this, yeah, this yeah. story. It's just dogs abuse, dogs abuse, racist abuse, yeah. just vile abuse. And yeah. it came out today, the story was that. And she's the one who's wrong for bringing it up. Yeah, of course, yeah. because it's always the person who's um, the victim that has yeah. to be pulled over the hot coals. Yeah. And it's, of course, it's not the first time it's happened. Yeah. But I think a lot of people have looked at it and gone, well, what's the point of me saying yeah, anything? Yeah, that's true. Especially now in the social media environment. Yeah. Like, would anyone even believe me, you know? Mm. I think that's part of it. But the thing that gets my goat is, and something I try to maybe explain or like i was a little bit um indelicate shall i say when i tweeted about it earlier last week this idea that in britain that conversation has led to public outcry and this woman being fired or leaving a position or mm-hmm. whatever they're gonna say she's done i mean whatever the fuck the position was in the first place um i mean it must be nice to be a courtier right that sounds like you know, it's a, a fucking laugh mm-hmm. um 
whereas in Germany, that is often the first opening gambit if someone hears an accent or if somebody makes a, a an error or they just happen to look what someone might consider not German, right? Mm. That's enough for them to be othered by other people. And I was trying to contrast those two things. I maybe didn't do it as well as I, I could do. My thought being is like that, it says a lot about the two countries and on the face of it, it looks like, oh, Britain is more introspective or it's more sensitive about race and things like that. And it's not. It's not. I don't think it is really that. No. I think it's about, I think it's about British people being outraged about something for a short period of time and doing absolutely nothing to fix any of the systemic yeah. issues that it outlines, right? I think that's what it is. It's about, oh, this is this is terrible that this has happened. I think it's terrible. Anyway, let's talk about something else this week. In Germany, it's just not even a topic. Like, you'll yeah. get people who come back to you and go, well, why, why can't I ask where somebody's from? And it's like, you can ask me where I'm from because I'm a fucking white boy, right, who looks like you. And that's a different, like I said, a different discussion. But if you're pulling up someone who's speaking to you in German and going, where are you from? For her common see. And it's like, well, is it just because somebody has a different colored skin that you feel that it's okay to suggest that they might not be German? That you don't fit in. There is a lot of, yeah. there's a lot that is implied with it and it really hurts. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. I can completely understand what's Fulani supposed to do, like stand her ground and, and like really speak her mind. And you're expected yeah. to also be like polite. And there's so much onus on you to be nice to the person. I don't know if I mentioned this ever in, a, in the podcast. I think in um, on one occasion in a, a close group of people, there was someone who always asked me very pointed, straight up questions. And it really got my goat. Like we would be talking about something that is, say, it was not related to food at all. It was not related to countries. It was just everyday conversation. And she goes, um, do you have desserts in Sri Lanka? Anything that is particular oh, to Sri Lanka? And oh, everyone else sake. thinks it's a very interested, curious question. And I'm like, it's like whiplash. And then I'm like, yeah, ice cream. We eat ice cream. Oh, you have ice cream in Sri Lanka. Oh, wow. And and I, I was told that I was quite rude by another person who overheard us. That, you know, she was just trying to be nice. And why can't I just go along with it? Why do I always have to make something, you know, like see something that isn't there? And mm. it, it can be very distressing. And uh, yeah, my best wishes and strength. Anything I can send over, like, uh, I hope Fulani has a good support network. But it's distressing to see that as well. I think it's distressing for people who have no experience of the the weight of that discussion to then offer their unsolicited opinion about whether it's an acceptable thing to ask somebody yeah. or not. But they should feel about it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you should feel okay. Ah, oh, it's okay. Like, oh, you're being rude if you're saying, I'm like, like honestly. It's, it's, like not, that, it's not racist, I, it's just fact. Ah, right. Like, I had a friend, he's an Irish guy, right? And he's mm. fucking hilarious, right? He's a great guy. And um, he had a policy, because this happens, and this is the kind of experience that a lot of native English speakers, like myself, probably have had in Germany. And it was, he, we'd be standing in a bar, and after a few drinks, people hear you maybe speaking English. Mm. And you'll see people looking at you, right? 
that's fair enough. We're speaking a different language and I know people speak English, so it's a bit different. And again, the context is different. If we were different people speaking different languages, it would have a different vibe to it, right? But you'll see people perk their ears up mm. and then you'll get these people who are like floating around the room and they're trying to work out how they can get into the orbit of where you are so they can speak English to us, right? Mm. And you can see them, and I'll, I'll, I'll scope them, and you'll see them, and they'll be like, they'll be like looking over or trying to catch your eye, and I'll tend to ignore them. And I've got this Irish friend who came up with the best system of dealing with it, mm-hmm. which was they would come up, and it, the, the, the people think, oh, like, oh, we're just being friendly, we're just here. I just want to speak to me. Oh, where are you from? And those conversations are irritating because I've had a million of them where someone goes like, how long have you lived here? And I'll say, I've lived here for 10 years. And they'll go, oh, do you know about Nürnberger sausages? And I'm like, yes, because I've lived here for 10 years. We have this thing in Germany, it's called Augustiner beer. Ah, it's the best beer. And I'm like, yes, I know, I've lived here for 10 years. And you would have constantly these conversations. It becomes irritating. And his defense mechanism was genius they come up and they go ah oh, are you are you speaking english and he would turn to them look them dead in the eye and go ich bin nicht hier um zu english unterrichten i'm not here to teach you english i like i love that like you're there in the pub to have a chat with your mates who you maybe haven't seen and that's like a really minor thing and i'm quite open i don't mind i like chatting to people I like meeting new people but the same thing goes i think in that situation where you're like you don't need to get involved in this. You don't need to like highlight the fact that we're from a different place yeah. and we're not here to be like the cultural representations or hear your story about how you went to London one time. <laughs> I wonder I wonder if it's something that you've experienced where someone will come up and tell you about their their experience of going to Goa or something or their spiritual journey or like <laughs> are you quite spiritual? Has that happened to you? Oh yeah. Turmeric, Ceylon turmeric. Oh yeah. People say they've been to Ceylon and then they ask me, is it Ceylon or Ceylon? And uh, I get that. (laughs) (laughs) What do you say? It's Ceylon. I think Ceylon is something from Star Trek or Star Wars. I think it's Star Trek, right? No, no. It's from um, Battle... Battle... uh, um, Battle Star Galactica. Galactica. Okay, then I've been giving people the wrong information. (laughs) When I see, I mean, this is something that often happens to me, that always happens to me, right? If I see Indian colleagues at something, mm. or there'll be students who have come over to, from India, mm-hmm. and I'll chat to them, and the only thing I ever ask them is about cricket. That's the only thing. Because you like it. And I'll be like, like you, well, no, because I know that all of my Indian friends mm. love cricket. Mm. And I'm like, straw poll, do you guys like cricket as well? Yeah, everyone yeah. always says yeah. And I'm like, how is it that everyone likes cricket? <laughs> Like, what about football? Man, I don't really like football. And we just talk about sport usually. But like, I think for some people, for some people, it's like, I don't know. It's like they want to ingratiate themselves with the, or show how kind of, how cultured they are or how well-traveled they are. And like, oh, I'm not like, I'm not like these other plebs. I'm I'm an interesting person. And I feel like that's what it's and about. And they pr- mispronounce all the coastal town names. You know, they'd say, you know, I was there in 1970. <laughs> One doctor pulled open his drawer and he gave me like old Sri Lankan money. He said, oh, you know, my wife and I, we went to Ceylon. And, you know, maybe you can use yeah. this. <laughs> I mean, okay, that was sweet. <laughs> I still have it. But, um, <laughs> but like, is it, is it Tengol, Tengol and Nuara, Elio? Yeah. They, oh, the awful pronunciation yeah. of the Sri Lankan towns. So Tangal, Nuara, Elio, 
yeah. But if they went, if this, uh, this, it'd be totally different. Oh, let me, you tell me, it'd be totally different. I would have thought if they came up to you and went, oh, like, um, I heard you're from uh, Sri Lanka. I went there a few years ago. I really had a good time. Like, oh, I went here, here, and here. Like, or where, are you from somewhere that I might mm. know? And then you, but maybe that's a different conversation. Yeah. Like, I feel like the British conversation should be different it wouldn't be where are you from it would be like less direct but you do get like there's a difference between going um sort of waiting for you to tell me where you're from or what your background mm. is like that's what i would do is the say the most sensible thing in these and, and if you want to find out have a conversation about something else wait for the person to bring it up and if they don't bring don't it up bring. then you're not going to have a conversation about it. and that's the end of that the the worst way is to say where you're from or alternatively, to do the fucking awful British thing of going, oh, I, I hear a little bit of an accent. Are you, are you, f-? and you're like, fuck off, like, fuck off right now. And that's a real British way of doing it, of going like, ooh, I I heard a hint of a, ooh, something there. And you're just like, what are you, fucking Sherlock Holmes of accents? Like, chill out. Like, honestly, like, but yeah, I would imagine, again, I would be surprised if you hadn't had that experience as well, Dilly. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've, I've had people um, say uh, that I'm from India. And uh, when I was younger, I used to be offended by it. But I think I've learned to unpack what the question means. And it doesn't bother me. Mm-hmm. It's nothing that bothers me. Mm-hmm. Um, it does bother me, though, when people say, ah, oh, you know, yeah. I, I don't I don't hear the difference. It's it's all India, you know. Oh. And, um, yeah, they're like, oh no. In fairness to the average German, I do get a lot of people, a lot of my Irish friends get questions about what it's like living in England. So ah. maybe it's just a general inability to understand what a map is and how <laughs> geography works. But yeah, I mean that's being me at my most generous. I think. Anyone who's been paying attention to the news in the last week will probably know, if they didn't watch it, they will at least have heard about it in the news, that Germany is out of the World Cup. Uh, Commiserations, Germany. It was not a massive shock to everyone that I spoke to. Most people I asked about it said that they were unsurprised that Germany had gone out. And uh, I didn't really watch the game. I sort of watched bits and bobs of it. But it did seem like they went out at least with having won a game, but they didn't get the result that they needed to see themselves get out of the group. Any minor major problem in Germany just creates a level of introspection that I I don't even think like Buddhist monks have as much introspection as, as the average German does when something doesn't go quite according to plan. And the perfect example I saw was in an article by celebrated uh, journalist Gabor Steingart writing in focus.de and the title of his article was Wir erleben den relativen Absteig einer Nation nicht nur im Fußball and it was it's it is the fu- it's the funniest thing I've read in ages I didn't know a lot about Gabor Steingart I'm not sure if you know who Gabor Steingart is particularly have you heard of this guy before um uh, he he sounds like a national treasure Yes, he is. Uh, he's a little bit of a. I don't know whether. And maybe, maybe national treasures is the right thing. He's he's sort of a famous writer. He wrote a lot about um, the failings of Barack Obama's government. Mm-hmm. He is kind of um, arch, and he's he's famous for writing these incomprehensible metaphors. 
right? And the metaphor he uses in this article is to compare the current state of German football to the current state of just Germany in general. And he comes out with some humdingers of comparisons. And it, I mean, honestly, I re tried to read it in German and I mm -hmm. had to switch to English because I couldn't understand a freaking word he was saying because mm -hmm. it is the most impenetrable uh, piece of writing. And he says that the, the Guardian commented that the exit from the World Cup feels like the end of something. Mm -hmm. And he uses that as a base point to jump off and say, well, not only is football failing, but Germany as a whole is failing. And he compares football and politics, not just the, the football manager in Hansi Flick to Olaf Scholz. He compares the football team with the national feeling. And it's like, it's an exercise in extending the metaphor beyond reality almost. And he said, uh, he says here, we are witnessing the relative descent of a nation that after the debris of war had been cleared away, was repeatedly celebrated as a world champion in prosperity, growth and exports. The new Germany fought. This self-confident but not arrogant country no longer exists. We have become strangers to ourselves, although, or precisely because, we have hardly changed. Germany is still playing with the operating system of the 20th century, not only in football. And I was just like, oh, get over yourself. That's a gut punch, <laughs> like, though. I, um, you don't do you feel think? like that? I don't feel like it's that much of a deal, really. Like I feel like it is typical germanness of to go very introspective and to like think the walls are closing in and the sky's falling on our heads because of a slight setback and i feel like that is what's happening in all through this article is we're trying to make this situation sound much worse than it really is but right now isn't that the case what in what sense? Give me, give me some. I mean, politically me speaking, I mean, I wouldn't say so. I mean, I, I don't think it's any more disastrous than anywhere else. Britain just tanked its economy by electing an insane person as prime minister. Italy elected a far right party yeah. that sees its links back to Mussolini. Right, France yeah. came within a ball hair away from electing, <laughs> electing. a right wing government. Yeah. Right, like. I mean, yeah, you tell me. I mean, do you think that this is, does this how it feels? Because it doesn't feel like that for me, but then I'm maybe different. So you tell me what it feels like for you. Maybe I've like, you know, lived with a sense of doom since I was five years old. So. <laughs> <laughs> is that why you moved to Germany? You're like, these people have the same feeling as I do about the world. I'm just taking it in my stride, Nick. I don't know that Germany's ever been that self-confident on the global stage. Like, it's always shirked or avoided taking any kind of leadership position globally. So I don't really see that as much of a much of a muchness. And he makes a lot of comparisons about... Well, this is the kind of politics this of the man. Yeah. When he says things like, our welfare state is paying more and more people out, even though the supply chain is broken on the part of the payers. The two large state-owned companies, Bundeswehr and Barn AG, are dysfunctional, lazy, and unimaginative. And you just sort of like, well, you've given the example of people on benefits. Well, like, we meant to blame everyone on benefits, like, for taking benefits. That seems like it's a very kind of up-his-own-ass kind of opinion. Mm. And that the idea that the Barn AG is dysfunctional, well, it's been dysfunctional for longer than a year. It's been dysfunctional for about f all the time I've been in Germany. So let's not pretend that's a recent occurrence. I mean, taking a swipe at the Deutsche Bahn doesn't feel very original, to be honest. I mean, no. if he checks out the Twitter account of the Deutsche Bahn, 
Yeah, you don't have to be a top-notch journalist to do that. I get that there's a German propensity for, for pessimism and I've got a propensity for optimism. And so that's always going to contrast. But mm-hmm. it does feel like every setback is a disaster and every success is, is success grasped out of the jaws of failure. Like it's never like, oh, we did that really well. Like, mm. And I said to a group yesterday, I was like, if I gave you the option of not being very good in two World Cups, but you'd win a World Cup mm. in a decade, would you take it? And everyone went, mm. And I was like, you know, people aren't born. Like, I would bite your arm off. I don't care. We could win a World Cup and never qualify for another World Cup again, but I would have seen us win a World Cup. Like, I don't give a shit. Like, that's the mentality difference, I think. A lot of British people would probably say the same thing. If their nation was able to win a World Cup, they would sacrifice a lot of things to see it. Mm. Whereas in Germany, it's like, like, it's an expectation, perhaps, that they should be perform. Equally, is it like an expectation that their government should be doing sort of wonders? And if that is the case, where were these people when Merkel was in charge? <laughs> and also, I think, I mean, um, I was with him until he got to the welfare state. Um, I can see the sense of doom, the energy crisis. Um, where are we, politically speaking, with, uh, I mean, we have... Uh, far-right politicians who have much more of a platform than they did like five or ten years ago and uh, I mean where we are going it's going to be quite difficult and and I can see that but I mean, the moment someone says ah the welfare state and uh, that's a very cheap shot that and the Deutsche Bahn I would say so I mean even though I complain mercilessly about Deutsche Bahn like that's my prerogative as a customer but it doesn't mean that I think we need to tear it out root and branch. Yeah. I don't necessarily think it's failing. But the kind of point he makes towards the end of the article is that he says, everything seems piecemeal in government and on the soccer field. The actors suffocate in their rituals and enjoy the staging of significance. Uh, we see them, but we don't feel them. They speak, but not to us. When they get a chance to speak on the radio, the taxi driver looks for the nearest music station with routine indifference. So this idea that somehow they're directionless in government, they don't know what they're doing, just like the football team, and they're not really talking to us or representing us. And I'm just like, mate, you had a fucking election last year, man. Chill out. We've just been dealing with Russia. Chill out. Like, come on. Like, what is it you want from these people? Like, the fucking thing that pisses me off about people who write articles like this is where the fuck were they when we were on pause for 15 years Mm -hmm. it's like i find it just frustrating and it's like as soon as a government tries to move anything forward we've got a moving forward with the burger geld moving forward with citizenship moving forward with cannabis legislation moving forward lots of different things it's just general progress after being on pause and it's like these people just seem to hate it. They hate the idea of anything that moves us forward in any direction. doesn't matter. They want digitalization. All of these people always want digitalization. They don't know what the fuck they're talking about when they talk <laughs> about digitalization. What they want is an app for something. And, and this is the thing, right? They talk about wanting digitalization. Mm. I spoke to a friend the other day and he said, we was in town in the supermarket, not in the supermarket, in like a shopping mall. Mm. And he said, nearly every shop demanded you download an app just to use the changing rooms in a shop. Like lots of shops in Britain are so digitalized that they're basically forcing you to download an app to use their services in store so that they can steal all your fucking data. And it's like, is that what you want? Because that's the digitalization that a lot of places are taking on. It's like, if you don't tell us what it is that you mean by digitalization, like I know what we are now, 
I know things can be improved. Mm. What's the vision for that side? If there isn't a vision, don't just career into it. And if the vision is Silicon Valley, then maybe think of a different vision. But if we're talking about we're in a directionless state and it's like, well, we're not. We're just trying to deal with all the things that have accumulated on the, the in-tray yeah. while the government didn't do anything or didn't really make any policies or didn't fix any of our problems. Yeah. And it kind of feels like, it feels like a precursor to what might happen if Labour wins the next election in the UK mm. and they come in and it's just an intray of like, oh, we didn't do anything about migration. We didn't do anything about Brexit. We didn't do anything about the economy. We didn't fix schools. We didn't fix social care. We didn't fix the hospitals. And it's just a piling up mm. stuff that they just didn't deal with. And I'm like, this is what happens when you allow the government to do nothing. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry I got a bit ranty, but it just feels like, it feels like one of those like, arch articles from someone who thinks he's like really really smart and saying something very clever when actually he's really yeah but he's just very... like put into an entire article but people put into two tweets yeah exactly why wasn't this a thread <laughs> <laughs> this could have been an email it could have been an email it just could have been a newsletter would have made my life easier probably would have lowered my blood pressure a little bit <laughs> so on friday in berlin there was a um an interesting event held on a, a nondescript street and square there was a renaming ceremony for this particular part of berlin and it was a chance for maybe germany to have a think about other parts of its history beyond world war ii and I'm taking this from the local.de's article uh, entitled Berlin Says Goodbye to Part of Germany's Colonial Past. The green representative of Berlin's Mitte district, uh, Stephanie Remlinger, said, For far too long in Germany, we have minimized our colonial past, understated colonial injustices, uh, and the crimes that were committed. And she was saying this on the, on the eve of a renaming ceremony in what Berlin calls the African Quarter. And the street in question that was being renamed was uh, Nacht Egal Platz, which was now re being renamed Mangabel Platz. Square Nacht Egal Platz was named after the explorer Gustav Nacht Egal, who gave his name to this after his time in, in West Africa. I think it was in Namibia, um, or Togo and Cameroon, sorry, uh, and Namibia. Uh, and this was part of Germany's colonial conquests towards the end of the 19th century. And the name that's replaced it comes from Emily and Rudolf Duala Mangabel, the heads of the royal family of the Dualic people from Cameroon. So we have this moment in Berlin where they're renaming an area or street of the city to recognize the, the sort of colonial history that Germany has had, which isn't really discussed that much uh, certainly it's not one a, a topic that's often talked about in, in sort of school and things only only a little bit mostly um how do you feel about this dilly do you feel like it's the right decision to rename streets that have been named after problematic people or people who've committed horrendous historical acts of violence do you feel like this is the right step if i'm allowed to you know, I'm, I'm side-eyeing the British Museum as I say this. Oh, no, no, no. You can remember, <laughs> uh, remember our discussion, Dilly. 
how I feel about Britain and how welcome <laughs> you are to say whatever the hell you like. I know I'm in a safe space to talk about side-eyeing the British Museum. Very much so. Please, side-eye away. <laughs> um, I, I think it's, it's a very good representation of where we are and how we approach our pasts. And it's also a way of uh, publicizing how we approach our pasts and uh, raising public consciousness. I think it's, um, it's inevitable the way the world is going, so it's not all a sense of doom since the age of five. Um, I mean, I quite welcome this. I am, though, a teensy bit surprised that we have a similar article on BBC News, and it's dated the 12th of April 2018. So Berlin streets to lose links with brutal colonial past. That's the title. And we are still talking about the so-called, um, uh, in quotation marks, uh, African quarter in the northwest of the German capital. I'm just wondering, so how, how is it that we have very similar sounding stories for uh, over four years apart? How did we get to that? I would imagine it's bureaucracy. I imagine it takes a long time to change the name of it. That would be my guess. I have no evidence for that. But I imagine that that's when they announced they were going to do it and it's taken this long to actually do it. I would imagine that would be the, the, the sort of discussion around it. Because I think it's it's one of those things that you kind of have to do in consultation with everybody. Mm-hmm. And I, I appreciate that. I think it's done for the right reasons, but mm. I, I appreciate it also probably takes a lot of time. But you're right, it's a discussion that we've been having a lot, especially since the um, murder of George Floyd during the pandemic, mm. and that sparked a new sort of introspection or thought about, certainly in Britain, um, but across the world, it made people think a little bit more about their their histories as nations. But do you think it remedies anything like the argument Germans might make would be, it doesn't fix anything. What does it matter what the name of a street is? Do you feel like that's a legitimate argument to say renaming streets doesn't really fix anything? I, I mean, in my opinion, I would say it's, I mean, to, fixing it is a huge complex thing. And it's not like putting a plaster uh, or a bandaid on a, on, a, on a scratch. It is the right step in the long, complicated process of fixing it. And if that is the case, why not? Um, I mean, in my experience, um, everyday discussions about racism and the colonial past of Germany is, I mean, these are very uncomfortable conversations. I mean, I'm surprised, and I can also imagine in another sense that it has maybe taken four years to do it right, to um, involve the right people, um, I mean, we get to take a step forward, but let's also do it very consciously and with awareness. So I do appreciate that. But I mean, what I meant was in a certain way, it's also very surprising that it has taken us over four years. And I wonder whether that's symbolic of um, how slowly we are moving forward as well. well. I guess progress is progress, right? I suppose would be the argument. Yeah. I mean, these things are not very easily won, these battles. No, not at all. I think it's very difficult to navigate this kind of topic because I I do sympathise to a certain extent with the German argument that like oh do we have to constantly keep apologizing for everything is that where we are now that we just always have to say sorry and 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 i can understand that frustration but i don't think this is so much as an apology as it is an acknowledgement of of what happened i think britain has a slightly different problem in that 
because of the way German history panned out and the way things were constructed after the Second World War, the focus has always been on the sort of 20th century history, right? Before the First World War is kind of, it's covered, but it isn't covered in the level of detail that say the Second World War is for obvious reasons. Whereas in Britain, there hasn't been that moment of introspection for sure. But also we made heroes out of everyone that did anything with regards to empire. So we have statues to Captain Cook. We have statues mm -hmm. to Robert Clive. We have statues to Cecil Rhodes. These people who we really probably shouldn't be celebrating. I can appreciate that Captain Cook discovered or mapped the coast of New Zealand and Australia but he was also a horrendous bastard. And I also understand that he was in a time of horrendous bastards, but he was a pretty, he was up there, right? There was people saying at the time he was a bit of a bastard. Mm -hmm. Robert Clive is another example. Robert Clive was the, the soldier of the Eastern, uh, British East India Company in Bengal. He's famous for the, this comprehensive victory over Indian forces at the Battle of Plassey. Mm -hmm. He became this very wealthy, landed aristocrat, MP, and he was a sociopathic lunatic, right? Mm -hmm. He was a military genius to a certain extent, but he was also a sociopath. And like, are we celebrating that? Because I don't think that's something we should celebrate. Or Cecil Rhodes, who, I mean, what is his quote, his famous quote about how Britain is the right race of people to conquer the world and how we will bring civilization to the, the masses of Africa and the things he did in Rhodesia were horrific. But there's a statue of him still in, is it Oxford or Cambridge? I, f I forget which one of the um, celebrated British universities they've decided to put a statue of a racist in. Uh, probably both um knowing those institutions um and i think they're reasonable discussions but there's a difference because we've made them into heroes yeah. and now we're saying oh actually oh hang on a second it turns out these people were villains yeah. um, and there's people who've been brought up with this heroic narrative who find it difficult i think it's different in germany because you don't have that heroic narrative to deal with but you do have the implacable nature of older germans who don't like change it's also very hidden when you, and I mean, in one sense, it's good to identify a problem and do something about it because there's no moving forward uh, with awareness if that doesn't happen. Uh, in mm -hmm. another sense, so I'm aware of like changing names of streets and roads uh, in independence movements with colonialism. Mm -hmm. And uh, like in Sri Lanka, so you had like streets, uh, street names, park names, and you had the mm -hmm. very British sounding Victoria Park and the name changed mm -hmm. to Vihara Mahadevi uh, Park, mm -hmm. um, for instance, and you have and but these things are also very uh, rooted in, in a nationalism that that also doesn't end quite well for everyone concerned. So um, mm -hmm. I'm surprised and uh, quite happy that this is happening on German soil. So we are recognizing something and we are changing something here. I mean, someone is obviously prepared quite well over four years then for the backlash because that's going to come too. It can't be easy. It, it isn't. And you asked that question before about why it took so long. Mm. The article in The Local is really good. It actually has a bit of information on that. We were talking about the fight from 2018 onwards. Actually, this has been a much longer fight over changing names mm -hmm. so there's a street called Morenstrasse which mm -hmm. is translated the street of the Moors and the Moors is the medieval term uh, for Muslims yeah and that still exists and for 25 years campaigners from the black community have been lobbying to get rid of of this name 
Um, although authorities agreed to do this in 2021, there was a complaint lodged against it and there's a whole legal process involved. And I think that is another aspect of it. That there are people who actively don't want to change their names. We have this in Augsburg. We had the Dry Morenkopf Hotel. Oh, no. Indeed. The first time I came here in 2008, up until like they changed the name, I walked past and went, oh, there's the racist hotel. They had stone carved more heads on the oh, front Jesus. of it. Like, and you know where the, the heads comes from, right? You, do you know where that imagery comes from? You can see it. And it's the reason you have uh, Moore's heads on the Sardinian flag, for instance, right? Because they would cut the Moore's heads off and pile them up during the Crusades. That's where it comes from. That's the name. But the lack of knowledge about that is like, oh, it's just a fun name. And it's like, no, this is about like race war, religious war. It's about our history. And to have that name, you wouldn't have an inflammatory name on other aspects of a country's history in the same way, you know, celebrating those aspects either. Why would you have this? Yeah, but then there was a massive battle and it was a lot to do with students from Augsburg University that got it changed. There was a lot of petitioning, a lot of campaigning and boycotts and all the same. And they did change the name eventually. But like, that is one of these names that seems to just stick. And it doesn't matter, people seem to be attached to this name for some reason. And it just shows that there is still a long way to go before we get to a point where we can have sensible, historically-based discussions about the imagery that we see celebrating certain things. I will say in Germany's defense that it feels like there's a more mature conversation going on there than, say, in America or Britain. But it's yeah, it's just it's still a way to go, right? It's still just a way to go. In Germany, yeah. Before we finish the topic, I just want to plug something that I think is well worth reading. Um, the name's a little bit um, a bit hardcore, the name, but it is very much worth reading. It's called The Kaiser's Holocaust, and it's by David Olasoga and Kasper W. Erickson. Mm -hmm. It is a really good book. If you've never come across David Olasoga, he's a fantastic historian. I could recommend that book and, and anything by him. If you don't get the book, have a look at some of David Olasoga's articles online. They're very much worth reading. So, yeah, um, have a look out for those. At Servus Leute. And that brings us to the end of the show. We're going to stock up on king coconuts and browser tabletten. Oh yeah, we're going to have a real party around here. Oh yeah. Uh, one thing to note, I just want to apologize. Uh, Simon did say he was going to join us for episode 104, but sadly he was sick this week. So don't worry, he's hopefully going to join us next week. Uh, so look out for that. If you're enjoying the podcast, why not give us a rating on iTunes, which only takes a minute and can really help us. We are also uh, demanding, hoping, wishing, praying for Spotify stars. We're at 36 stars so far. It's doing well. I've seen some more established podcasts who have fewer stars than us. So well done to you lot. Uh, so do chuck us some stars on there. Give us a rating on uh, various different pod chasers that you're using uh, that would really help us out so yeah retweet us share a link or post with the hashtag decades from home or lowercase on twitter or instagram you can also support the podcast by going to ko-fi.com slash decades from home and contributing to help this uh, podcast stay afloat uh, as ever if you have any questions feedback or maybe an article or topic you'd like us to cover you can tweet Dilly on Delini Algama and you can tweet me at 40% German you can also get us on decadesfromhome at gmail.com if you have time take a look at 40%german.com weekly articles are up every Saturday all I have to say is thanks and bis some next time tschüss tschüss